Hey everyone, just a quick note before we start to say thank you so much to everyone who has supported the show by buying me a coffee. If you enjoy an episode, you can say thank you, support the show and encourage me to keep producing episodes. It's buymeacoffee.com slash out of hours. You can go to the link in the show notes and a massive, massive thank you to those of you who've supported so far. Please consider supporting it and I hope you enjoy this episode. When you perform as a high-performance athlete, you want to be at 85%. And extrapolating that theory to work, I think you want to be kind of 85%. And then you need a little outlet for expression, thought, reflection, you need a little bit of space. And so I think when I look back on it, that um, this was really starting to, to define that 15%. Welcome to the Out of Hours podcast, the podcast for people who are creating things they think should exist in the world. I'm Georgia Ritter, founder of outofhours.org, a community for people with side projects. I believe that everyone has a great idea, and working on things we care about can help us be more creative, more resilient, and more confident. But there are barriers that stop us from starting, sometimes time, money, or network, but also self-belief, not knowing where to start and wondering what other people might think. On this show, I'll explore the stories of people who have followed their curiosity, been brave, and started a side project, only to turn it into something much bigger than they ever thought possible. I'll explore the stories of nonprofits, businesses, creative projects, and social movements to understand the practical first steps they took, the doors these small ideas can open, and the magic that happens when you start taking your own ideas seriously. Today on the podcast, we have Tim Brown, co-founder of Allbirds. Allbirds is a public company. It had an IPO in 2021 and has almost 1,000 employees. But it didn't start that way. In fact, for many years, Allbirds was just an idea, a side project for Tim Brown, who was a professional footballer for the first part of his career, even playing in the World Cup. Tim was bored of the branded shoes he had to wear as a footballer and started to wonder if a better shoe could be made. For years, he experimented. Tim is a New Zealander, which is the home of merino wool, and he started experimenting with creating a shoe made of wool. After he had a prototype shoe, he launched the Kickstarter, which proved the idea was popular with other people. In 2016, Tim officially co-founded Allbirds with his co-founder, Joey Zwillinger, who helped shape the sustainability focus for the company. They are now a carbon-neutral company and were termed the world's most comfortable shoe by Time magazine. We talk about a whole range of things from tall poppy syndrome, why he thinks a sense of humor matters and entrepreneurship, and why he thinks the 85% rule of effort is so important. I hope you enjoy. Let's start with the idea and going from, I think it was in another interview I heard you talk about a notebook that you had on the pitch where you're kind of like starting to jot ideas of it. Is it, is, no, it's not the same one. I thought that was the same one. It's like, whoa. No, I've kept them, I've kept them my, whole, my whole life. I had this professor at uh, university and uh, he said, you should write all your ideas down. Um, at some point, they'll add up to something. And it was an offhand uh, comment and I, I took it literally. And even when I was playing sport and I was very, very focused on, on a professional sporting journey, those journals... And to call them journals is to give them more of a compliment than they actually are. They're like sort of scrapbooks, sketching, like quotes. If someone says something interesting, if I have a train ticket from a journey that I took that was memorable, sometimes they're sketching. And I've kept them my entire, you know, since I was 18. But the the larger point was, look, trust that what you're thinking about matters. And in the fullness of time, if you stick with it long enough, those little scratchings you know, can be something. And that was really powerful for me. Going back to those, the first notebooks where you started to think about all birds, where did the actual, and I think I hate this question. I always ask it, even though I hate it, which is like, where did the idea come from? Because it doesn't really work like that. But where's your first memory of thinking that there was something interesting you could do in this space? It, it, was, it was born from the intersection of a few things. I, I actually think, I think it's a great question in, in, in that sense, for me, I was uh, playing sport, playing professional sport and living, you know, a kind of a boyhood dream and finding it was really hard. And the mental uh, sort of stress of 
you know, living and uh, breathing the result week on week and whether you're going to get the team, whether you're going to make it. And I just sort of felt like, oh my gosh, like I've always wanted to do this and now I'm beholden to results and this is in a position to perform. So part, part, of, uh, part of this was me and my notebook and the idea that uh, I wasn't just a, a football player. Uh, there was a part of me that was doing that, but there was also this other part of me that was creative and was a designer at heart and always believed that that's what I was sort of built to do and that I could pursue that. The second thing was professional sport gave me a lot of time and you could play PlayStation in the afternoon or you could kind of pursue the idea of a, of a side project and that's really what, what this was. And then the last bit, uh, little known fact about professional sport, but the best bit about it is you get loads of free gear and the free gear uh, was, it had some problems for me. And so it kind of, this problem was there, creativity, time, um, and it wasn't much more than that. And, and so I started to, I started to riff basically. Um, and that was the beginning. You said you felt kind of almost like you had a creative side to you, a designer side to you. I think often people who are doing one thing, especially something like sport, which is so focused on like honing a craft in a very specific field, um, who suddenly start to feel a bit kind of trapped and a bit like, oh, you know, I've done this. I ha- there is more to me than this. Did you feel that? Or did you feel kind of more like, wait, this is a good idea. I want to pursue it. Like, was it more of an identity thing of like, I want to do something creative and I want to prove myself? Or was it more like, this is a good idea and I think someone should do it and why not me? It's a really interesting question. And I, and I, I think it's, it's probably more the latter. I, you know, look, I, I left New Zealand when I was 18 um, to go to design school I'd fall in love with the subject material. Football was something that I had to work really hard at and be the fittest and most prepared and the most competitive. The design piece of it kind of came a little bit naturally. I played football with Brazilians, one, one you know, and some just the most talented people that felt like they were born to do it. And the ball would stick to them, and it just looked so easy and natural. And that was never the case with, with me in football. And yet, with design, there was something about it that just just sort of made sense. And, and so from the moment that I, I picked up a pencil to study that subject, I knew that that was what I was meant to do. And I'm very, very lucky in that sense. So there's an element of, of, of identity for sure. I also just think though that I love the sport. I loved the challenge and we were trying to go to the World Cup and there was amazing things about it. But it was really helpful for me to not just be that. You know, even now, you know, Allbirds is, uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's become a big company, a thousand people and public and, but uh, there's other sides of, there's other creative lanes and things that I need to explore to perform better in that job too. And I, I think whatever it is that you're doing, um, I got introduced to this theory recently that like the best um, athletes perform at 85% and that when you're trying to, you're trying to operate at a hundred percent, that's when you get injured and you lose your rhythm. So when you perform as a high performance athlete, you want to be at 85% and you know, extrapolating that theory to work, I think you want to be kind of 85%. And then you need a little outlet for expression, thought, reflection, you need a little bit of space. And so I think and when I look back on it, that um, this was really starting to, to define that 15%. For me. One thing that I love to ask people, because I'm just fascinated and I've read loads of research on it, is whether it actually makes you better at your job. So based on that 85% thing, I think I heard that from... Uh, I think it was Hugh Jackman on the Tim Ferriss podcast. I don't know if you heard it somewhere else, Um, but I heard it on that. But I think it it kind of aligns with that, which is that actually if you're putting less pressure on this job being absolutely everything to you, it actually makes you better at it because you start to relax a little bit. You're less defensive. You're you're less stressed out by it. Um, But do you think it made you better at football or worse? Without question, it made me better. And I was able to sort of say, okay, you know, to your point, this isn't, there's, there's Tim Brown, the person that plays football on the weekend that bumps into a fan at, at the supermarket when he's grocery shopping on a Monday night and gets sort of like criticized. Like that's one part of me. And then there's another, there's another uh, part of me that's, that has something that's sort of walled off and separate. And to your point, I, I mean, I think even in the context of all birds, I think it, it helps you not take it quite so seriously, not hold on quite so tight, but there's a little bit of breathing room and space for reflection. And it's like anything else, when you look at within, you know, other people's problems or other businesses or other ideas, 
you know, the single most important job of, 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 of a leader and, and a founder certainly is to set a vision. And um, if there's not space to constantly tune and refine that, um, and I don't think you necessarily are always going to be able to do that at the coalface of operating and running and trying to build your business. So I think it has a lot of benefits and I haven't always got that right, but I, I certainly feel more certain than ever about maybe that that theory and, and, and whatever it is that you're doing. How do you do it in kind of present day? How do you do that in Allbirds? Like, do you have any techniques? Because I think with founders, it's very easy to get to think that all in means greater success, as you say. And all in does. I don't quite mean that, but I mean like going that your absolute max capacity means greater success. How do you set up a way to reach your kind of max performance without burning out? So staying at your eighty-five percent. Are there guardrails? Are there routines? Oh yeah, of course. No, of course there are. You know, it's so it's so interesting. I've got so so many thoughts. I mean, let's start with work life balance. The assumption inherent in that statement is the idea that life is good and work is bad. Um, and and the truth is that it can be the reverse and all over the place. And the lines have never been more blurred between what exactly that means. And you've got you've got to rethink a little bit what you want. And I, I think the starting point I think with all of this is you hold the pen more than you will think. And you have the opportunity to control how you show up and how you engage. And it's about outcomes and it's about performance. And if you, if you view it through, the, through that lens, some people may need to work a lot and lots of hours. And there's times when you need to do that. It's non-negotiable. And other people, it's all about optimizing your own experience to deliver the best outcome for yourself. And you know, I, I think there's so many different ways to do it. I, I think people often... Would ask me, and in the early days, and still do in an entrepreneurial context, what are the hours like? You must work crazy hours. It's not that. There's things drilled into your brain. It's six inches in your brain, and you're showering, and you're thinking about it, and you're waking up in the middle of the night, and you're thinking about it. So the hours are kind of like a little bit of a misdirection. It's it's not really about that. It's always about optimizing the outcome, and part of uh, optimizing the outcome is your own health and well-being, and you know your ability to sustain effort over the long term. Going back to our 85-15 theory, uh, you push too hard, you don't rest your body, um, you get injures, injuries. You know, you can win a couple of games or lose a couple of games. At the end of the day, you want to win the season. So this is about long-term effort and incremental improvement and sustaining the pursuit of something for a long period of time. So if you work backwards from that, your own enjoyment matters, your own energy matters, your own physical health and willingness to kind of keep showing up and going again really matters. And so I think you, then you can kind of design the way that you might best do that. And uh, in, in my particular case, I, and there's a series of sort of things that are really, really important for me that I've learned and they become non-negotiable and you find that the world uh, moves around to support them when they understand them. <laughs> and then you kind of you you get after it. And uh, I feel now I'm good or getting good at this only because I have done it for the best part of a decade now. And, um, and, and so unlocking that ability to work at something for a long time is key. And I think we massively underestimate what we can do in the long run and overestimate what can be done in the short term. This is all about continuous improvement. And as an athlete, I think you, you intuitively understand that. Another follow-up thing on the hard work thing. I mean, yeah. you, we all know that the friend that you like meet for a drink and like, how's it going? Oh, I'm so busy. Oh, I'm just like, I'm completely busy. You really strive, and I think we should all strive to not be that person, <laughs> you know. And and that's not to say there's a periods of time that you have to work really hard and do long hours and grind things out. We all do, but I don't think we want to be the person that makes busyness the centerpiece of the way that we present ourselves. And I think at the end of the day, and I've been guilty of this, um, the answer shouldn't be you know I worked really hard. The, the answer should be I, I was successful in what I was trying to do, and th that work was, uh, you know, facilitated the outcome that I wanted. The, the goal shouldn't be the hard work. The goal should be the successful outcome. And sometimes I think we, we you know, can get caught optimizing for one and not the other. So that, again, the 85-15 principle, the ability to rest, the ability to step back, the ability to, to make sure that the work that you're doing on any given day is the, is the right thing for the organization or the business that you're trying to build, so, so important. And, um, and so I think to focus on the hours would be to miss the larger point. Did you come to that conclusion through experience? Because I think a lot of early entrepreneurs, or at least entrepreneurs early in their journey, 
they sort of have that idea that, and actually it's often true in software companies that the hours that you put in are directly correlative with the success of the early company, right? Because you're competing against other companies that have larger teams. And so you as an individual putting in more hours on the software will have an outsized impact on the outcome. Do you think that it changes like later on? So once you've built those kind of early foundations, you've got the early traction, then you can start to optimize. Or do you think, would your advice be to to early entrepreneurs that they should optimize really early on? Well, again, really interesting. I, as a maybe an athlete, you understand inherently in the compounding impact of getting a little bit better every day. So if you come in and you work at something and you practice it for a long period of time, sustained period of time, you're going to get better at it and ultimately you're going to be successful. And so the question is what's going to sustain that? And there's going to be an inherent love or an interest in the activity, um, usually a sense of the larger reason why you're pursuing that. In the case of football, just going in to get a little bit better at the football wasn't enough. For me, it was playing for my country and playing for New Zealand was this incredible thing that unlocked so much for me and my family and the sense of community and, and I was prepared to do whatever. So there was a, there's a few things that go into that. But if, if, you, if, you, if you're able to unlock that, um, that's part of the, the, the puzzle here. You know, find something that matters enough that you're going to work really, really hard at it. I think just to go back to that, I remember I was coaching at like a youth soccer camp in, in America. And there was this old English guy came over. He played in like professionally for 15 years in the lower leagues in England. And he was over here like in, his, in the next phase of his life coaching. And I was playing soccer at university, uh, football university. And he sort of said, how are you preparing for the season? How are you thinking about it? And I said, I'm working so hard. I am. My goal is to be the fittest player on the field. That is, that is my identity and I'm going to – and because I could run and I wasn't technically always so good, but I can run. He said, well, that's, why would you want to be the fittest? Why wouldn't you want to be the best? And I was like, oh, yeah, that's actually a really good point. That, it, was a, it was a major mo- moment for me that it, um, for me to progress in my sporting career, I, I needed to make myself essential and I needed to help the team win. And that was like a real shift that it wasn't enough just to sort of show up and do one thing here that the, the real opportunity was to help the team be very, very successful. And so it, it, it really shaped the way that I, I kind of started to build a, what ultimately became a professional career, make myself essential, make myself um, uh, uh, key to the team. So again, look, it's, it's hard to speak to every context, but you know, just to work hard and to do one thing, is, it's, it's only one piece of it. How does that fit into the larger vision for the organization and how ultimately does it help the team win? And if it means that you have to work long hours and it's a programming and that's just part of it, then that's, that's the answer. In the case of leadership and vision setting up um, and, and really building an idea, I, I don't ever think it's quite that simple. Mm. Yeah, that's a good differentiation, I think. I think you're right that the, like, you need the space to have new ideas. If you look into research and creativity, like there's a reason that you have some of the best ideas in the shower or on a run or something like that, because often you, you do a lot of the hard graft kind of gathering the information. And then when the brain can relax, that's when you start to kind of assimilate information and put things together and come up with new ideas. But then there's also the question I think of like, even within that narrative, it's like the work and the work goal is the number one thing. You know, even with, right, because you're saying even, you know, I'm going to do sport because it go it works towards this ultimate thing or I'm going to spend time with my family because it works towards this ultimate thing. But I think you're right that actually that the kind of work-life balance thing and the, the way we define them is a bit old-fashioned because actually it's like a cycle. I think Jeff Bezos calls it a cycle. You know, when I'm happy at work, I'm happier at home. When I'm happier at home, I'm happier at work. T- totally. I, and I, I, I think that's the key. And, and that's unique to every person, how exactly they want to work. And if you're privileged enough, you know, to be able to even be having this conversation, a lot of people aren't. It's not, it's not a luxury that, that everyone can afford. Let's be clear about that. But if you can, you sort of think, okay, well, I've got, I've got more, I control the pen here. And uh, I can actually sort of design this to optimize the outcome that I'm, I'm striving for. So you know, what does that look like? For me, exercise is really, really important. If, if I'm traveling and I'm on a plane, I'm, I'm not connected to the Wi-Fi. That's thinking time. And so is the exercise piece. There's no technology involved with that. It's like the one time that no one can get 
in touch with me because those periods of sort of nothingness become really important and you fill them to your earlier point with creativity. Um, I'll, I'll sprint through the week and I think particularly in an entrepreneurial context, you, you start Monday, you build up and through by the end of the you know the week, if you've had a good week, you're almost sort of almost manic. By Thursday, Friday, you're just working. And so I have a hard stop as, as, as best I can possibly design it um, at the end of the day on Friday and then I leave it. And the whole point is that it can be a little difficult to start back up again on on you know on Sunday as you start to prepare for for Monday um, because you've forgotten, and then it's another fresh it's another fresh uh, run, and then periodically and quite deliberately having periods of time where you'll step back, particularly with a co-founder, and you'll you'll go away and uh, Joe Joe and I try and do that quarterly definitively, and then once a year do do a trip where we're you know just the two of us somewhere different thinking. Uh, differently reflecting on where we're at. So those types of things, I mean, again, are small things, but you can start to design those into the way that, you know, you, your own personal philosophy that optimizes your performance because that's the best thing that you can do for your idea or your team. I want to ask you actually about New Zealand, how it is to have have ideas and build ideas in New Zealand. And the question is actually because I've met a few people from New Zealand and I've heard that there is a syndrome, which is quite a thing in New Zealand called tall poppy syndrome. And I think it's also a British thing in lots of ways, which is, you know, if someone comes up with an idea or is a bit too big for their boots or comes up with this idea that's a bit above their station or, or, you know, what they've been doing, there's a tendency to kind of bring people back down to earth, you know, and ground them back down to earth, which I imagine is not super kind of compatible with entrepreneurship and coming up with billion dollar ideas and you're doing all that stuff. Did you find any resistance culturally um, or just generally when you started to tell people about the idea? Yeah, well, uh, again, this is this is fascinating. I mean, um, uh, I was born in England. My father's English. My mum's a Kiwi. So yeah, there's a, there is like anything else, cultural stereotypes like that tend to become self fulfilling prophecies, <laughs> to a certain extent. Uh, how real they are and how wrong they are, I you know I think we debate the merits of that. Uh, you know, but here, here's what I know: I, New Zealand and, and England, to a certain extent. Um, has strengths and weaknesses like anywhere else. And some of the strengths are humility, modesty, maybe a sense of, of the collective and of being part of a team, and certainly the sense of, of an underdog kind of mindset. Wonderful things played out to their extremes. They could be negatives and, and positives. I think from an entrepreneurial context, certainly New Zealand is a sort of frontier you know, nation on the edge of the world. Uh, resourcefulness and the idea of making something out of nothing and of doing it yourself and of kind of um, not thinking what you you did was any better than the next person's. Those are those are you know foundational things that are very very supportive of a whole uh, community of New Zealand entrepreneurs that are amazing. Um, the flip side of it is sometimes there's another part of entrepreneurship that pairs the hard work and the resourcefulness with a grand big vision, <laughs> particularly in the context of of raising money and shifting categories. And I think we're a little less comfortable sort of standing up in front of people saying this little wool shoe idea that isn't even off the ground is going to try and shift an entire category that for the last 50 years has been, uh, let's use the word addicted to synthetic cheap uh, petroleum derived materials and shift it towards natural ones. Um, we're a little less comfortable with that. And you could make the case that's probably quite good in a way. Um, but you know, the flip side of it is there was a moment in time you know, when, we, when we came to San Francisco in America, which is a place I spent a lot of time. My wife's from that I'm, you know, uh, where we were raising money, and I got asked for the first time when this thing was six people working out of Joey, my co-founder's mother-in-law's house in San Francisco, and we were going to raise our second round of capital. Is this a billion-dollar idea? And I almost spat my cornflakes out. Like it was just the most ridiculous thing in my mind that, that we could even be having that conversation, but. Uh, I think I've learned that confidence and humility don't necessarily need to be in conflict, that it is, it's not, it's not showboating, although in some cases it can be to sit there and imagine the broader impact that your idea could have and to dream a little bit. If we're honest, we're all doing that. And that's um, that combination of a grand vision um, and short term resourcefulness are really in many ways, the keys to, to entrepreneurship. So you need a little bit of both. and. Um, but let's be real, like in New Zealand and uh, in England, I, I felt like the conversation started with 10 reasons why this was a bad idea. And you come to America and San Francisco 
and there's 10 reasons why you're going to change the world. And you need, you need a little bit of both. Um, and so I, I don't think it's right or wrong. It just, it is what it is. And I am a Kiwi. I am a New Zealander. It's where I'm from. And, uh, and that, that's got a whole bunch of advantages. And sometimes, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's other points of view that are really, really important for building something. Do you have any like practical things that you did to get more comfortable with being like, oh yeah, no, this is a billion dollar idea? Well, I found a co-founder. I, I found a co-founder in Joey that um, not that he was the owner, uh, owner of of that, but he was he was different from from me. He's different culturally. He'd been raised in America. He uh, lived in San Francisco. I at this stage, I'd, I'd run the wool shoe through a Kickstarter campaign. Um, I was a year in, still living in London, just finished grad school, retired from football, um, and um, and and so I'd been doing it by myself for quite some time. And then here, here comes Joey, who it had, had in all the ways that I had a vision for the product. He had a vision for the fact the world was going to change, that we were going to need to fundamentally need to rethink the products and services that we use um, through a sustainable lens, and that climate change was the problem of a generation. And he was seeing that so clearly, and he was an engineer, and he. Had, had uh, formal training and, and business and all the ways that I had not, and so it was really a, it was a collision of, of kind of visions and cultural experiences and backgrounds. And I always just sort of think that's so important, particularly in the context of founding uh, a business, that you have you have different sides differences um, that you can go further together than you can individually. And in our case, that was absolutely true. And I, I think it was a lot of where where. He came into the idea and he sort of said, "Oh, you know, why, why couldn't this change the world?" Um, and it, it was really, really helpful for me to see it through a different lens. I, w- I won't do a sort of big timeline of of everything because I think you did an interview with Guy Raz, how I built this, and it's a great kind of way for people to listen and, and hear the actual details of the timelines. But one thing I would love to ask, just so listeners get an idea of it, is how long did it take from that kind of first? notebook thing and those early stages to actually deciding to go full time on it yeah uh well i'll do i'll do it quick so uh, yeah i i I leave new zealand when i'm 18 go to design school in america uh 2000 graduate 2005 get rejected by uh an mls club um and then ultimately bristol city and swansea here in the lower leagues really struggling to get my break in professional sport, find it in the A-League in Australia um, and uh, start playing there in about 2007. Uh, and that's really when the idea was first born on the back of a notebook and the idea that there was an opportunity um, in in wool and in the wool industry to innovate and create a different category of footwear. Found my first factory on Google, uh, literally um, you know, started from nothing went to the World Cup in 2010, retired from sport in 2012, moved to London to go to grad school and launched the Kickstarter on 1st of March 2014, I believe, when I was still just in grad school finishing up. And, what were you, uh, you studying in grad school? Uh, I, I went to do management at LSE and, and that's when I launched the business and I was encouraged to do it again by another professor who sort of thought the idea was terrible, uh, encouraged me to put it on Kickstarter. Um, so that's 2014 seven years give or take um after the first little sketch or doodle um multiple years hundreds of prototypes multiple factories just a little bit i mean a crazy journey which again as a side project i was playing sport at the time so that uh you know that was that was a big part of it um and then joey was a customer of the kickstarter campaign a critical and difficult one just to have that on the record uh and and then we, we launched and came together um, uh, in late 2015 after a really difficult year of, of executing that Kickstarter. Uh, it's still in London. And then we moved to San Francisco in 2015, raised a little bit of money and launched Allbirds on the 1st of March 2016. And, and now here we are in, what was it, 23 and, um, you know, 1,000 employees and public company. And it's just, it's been a whirlwind over the last, uh, last period of time. It just took a long time. I think it's so important to people to hear that because I think it's so easy to be like, oh, you know, I need to start this immediately or I need to launch, I need to quit my job and launch this immediately. And that's why one of the reasons I run this podcast is I think it's, yeah, it's an important message for people to hear that and say, oh, actually this thing takes time and it takes work um, and it doesn't happen overnight. When you look back at that whole journey, was there a moment where you were like, 
oh, this is not a good idea. You know, when someone said something that really resonated with you and it turned you off it. And then was there also a moment where you were like, hang on a minute, this is a thing, it's happening. Did either of those kind of come to mind? Yeah, I mean, gosh, the first one, so many. I mean, I, <laughs> look, I, I, I think uh, informally tried to quit a bunch of times, uh, formally at least two or you know, at least two or three times. Um, and it was uh, family and close friends that just sort of said, no, 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 just keep going. This is there's something here. Um, and I, I think um, it's, it's, really, it's really hard. I mean, you know, to the beginning of that conversation, I mean, I think to, to, to romanticize that is to, is to, you have to scrap and scratch and convince people that it's right. But there was some like weird moments along the way when I look back on them that kind of fueled me. I remember that there's quite an iconic uh, wool brand um, in, in New Zealand. I met one of their senior executives. He met me through a coffee through a friend and I had this like early prototype of a wool shoe and he was so dismissive of it. He sort of said, oh, you know, we looked at this. This will never work. Um, uh, and, you know, basically uh, good luck and you're wasting your time. And there was an element of that where I was like, oh, what? how is he so clear on this? And he spent literally 15 minutes with me, but kind of like, few, I think maybe someone's m missing something here. And so there was like moments in time, or I have someone that I hadn't seen for a long time who, you know, was wearing or testing the shoes would ask me about them and say, Oh, those were so, you know, so great. Um, those little like kind of micro moments that sort of just encourage you to keep going. And, because there's a lot of people that will, will sort of try and knock it down. And I, I think in hindsight, if everyone's sitting there telling you it's amazing, it's probably not. And the bit that was really important for me was, was to get from it being an idea to actually a transaction, which was quite difficult for me because I didn't inherently think like that. But um, the, the, the message from my professor was, okay, you have this wool shoe idea. I don't like it. I think it's too complicated. It's too hard to make shoes. You don't know anything about shoes. No one's ever made shoes out of wool before. Um, put it on Kickstarter or something so someone other than your mum will buy a pair. And let's just see if it works, like validate the idea. And so that's quite important is, is to get to that transactional moment and understand because that's when all of a sudden, okay, I've, I've got this idea. I've made something. Is it, is it going to be essential or make a difference in a positive way into someone's life? So let's get to that moment as quickly as we can. Uh, and it's really difficult because once you do that, you like you open yourself up for feedback and criticism and people not liking it. But that was really, really important part of progressing the idea in the early stages. Before you did the Kickstarter, you said you had a prototype. Which, like if I imagine right now, I can imagine having an idea to make a shoe brand. I can't really imagine making a shoe. Like I just don't know what the steps are. What... What actually did you do to get that first prototype together? Well, you know, a couple of things. Practically speaking, I have a design background, but I've never designed a shoe, and I'm 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 training graphic design, so I need a designer. And so there's a really wonderful guy who I still work with called Jamie McClellan, who I got an introduction to, who was a New Zealand designer who was referred to me as the as the best person, um, you know, to help me do this. That was in New Zealand. Actually, truth be told. Uh, I, I um, approached the head of the local design school for a design reference and they said, oh, this is the person you should speak to. This is the best person in New Zealand to help you. And I wrote to that person and they didn't get back to me. So I went back to the professor and I said, who's the second? <laughs> and they gave me Jamie's name. Jamie hates that story. Um, <laughs> he's such a wonderful talent. We always think, oh, what would have happened if the first guy got back to me? But Jamie's a wonderful talent and, you know, over a decade on, just, he's an essential part of, of building this because he had a, a vision for the physical product. And then the second thing that happened was I needed a factory and I, I literally went on Google and in, in the off season of one of my football seasons, just went and visited a factory and started to make things because making stuff is hard. It doesn't matter what it is. It is about a relationship with a manufacturer. And in my particular case, shoes, new material, hadn't done that before. That just, I mean, it was very, very difficult. And that's what I did. And I, so I found somewhere to make it and I found um, a designer to help me shape it. And I largely funded it um, uh, myself. And, and, um, and then there was a, a, a textile research grant that was a part of it with the wool um, because that really had never been done before, which was, was a helpful starting point. And, then, and that's really all that it was. And then, uh, but that was multiple years. I mean, again, probably from 2008, 
through 2014, there's five or six years of just experimenting with this. Almost like when I tell that story in retrospect, I'm, I'm, I almost sound a little crazy. There was no business plan. There was no sense of what that was going to be other than I felt like there was a problem there uh, worth solving. Something I really liked that I heard you say or I heard about you was that you charged like a full amount to your football team to buy the shoes. And I think that is something that a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with in the early days, which is like putting a fair price and actually saying to people, hey, yeah, will you buy this for the price that I think it's worth? What was your thinking behind that? Like, were you not tempted to just give them out for free, get some like reviews? Like, How did you get the confidence to be like, no, I'm going to charge you $150 for this? Well, I mean, let, let's take this as an example that might be applicable to different spheres and worlds for people. But um, a locker room is uh, is a, a is a complicated place. It's like the heart of professional sport. <laughs> and I, I was very fortunate to play with some great friends, but uh, it, people can be very critical in the best of ways. And so uh, they're also, let's be clear, sponsored by some of the greatest, most iconic uh, sportswear brands in the world, getting loads of free gear. And so there's one guy in, in the locker in the locker room who's experimenting with making shoes. Uh, I was uh, I was ripe for being made fun of, and rightly so. Uh, and uh, I, but I, I leaned into it just because I thought if, if if I can actually make a product that resonates here, I can make it anywhere. <laughs> like this might be the most difficult environment possible to launch this type of product. And so actually, if I lean into it, um, there's probably a ton of lessons. And I don't know that I did that completely, but there was there was one and two in particular. One of my teammates was an English guy who actually had a very successful career in England, played for Crystal Palace called Paul Eiffel. And he would buy these shoes and he was really supportive. And and so it was, I think you've got to go find your equivalent of the locker room for your idea. Like, because for a product to break through, it doesn't just need to be good or comparable. It's got to be great and it's got to be essential and it's got to cut through and it's got to do something different and 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 so go find your equivalent of the locker room to test this thing as early as you can and it's going to really suck because you'll probably get a lot of criticism and people laugh at you but you've got to find that environment and you've got to find it quickly because if the thing's going to matter it's it's got to be great and and so you're gonna you're gonna have to really you're gonna have to face that sooner rather than later i want to ask you a bit about the climate side of it Lots of products kind of go in with the intention to be sustainable and then they get into the nitty gritty of the P&L and they're like, whoa, it's a lot more expensive to make things sustainable. I kind of want to keep this question broad for you to take in whatever direction you want. But how did you approach the sustainability, the financial sustainability of creating something um, that is now, I think, carbon neutral? Because you keep the price low as well. I think that's the thing that's especially impressive about Allbirds is that they are within the trainers world, they're relatively affordable compared to some of the mainstream brands. I'd love to kind of hear about your journey and, and how you make decisions on the sustainability of, of the shoes. Yeah, well, let's start with the role of purpose. And I, I mean, I, I think that's been well documented, well talked about. But for me, a deeper sense of of why you're doing something is essential to doing it and doing it really well and doing it um, for a long period of time. And in the case of football, playing for New Zealand became that for me and it unlocked a period of uh, incredible outcomes, but a lot of hard work and sacrifice because it mattered. And I felt like um, there was a special team um, that we could go to a World Cup and it hadn't happened since 1982 in New Zealand and we did it in 2010 and that was amazing. And it was driven by a sense of this is bigger than yourself. And in the case of Allbirds, uh, for at least the first seven or eight years I didn't have that I was making shoes out of wool and I uh, I hadn't grown up on a sheep farm I didn't you know shoes were a part of my life but I didn't you know dream that one day I was going to create shoes that wasn't sort of my essential reason for you know for being um, and yet I found myself trying to do this and it was really difficult and this went all the way through to the Kickstarter campaign and my father uh, you know um, who was incredibly supportive um, but used to call me a wool cobbler and it used to run, rub me. <laughs> I was just like, what am I, you know, uh, again, you talk about cultural um, advantages, the ability to use humor to make sure you were never taking whatever it is that you're doing too seriously. I mean, England, New Zealand probably lead the world in that, in that sense. And um, he was, 
constantly making fun and making sure that this thing was, you know, that this was this was this was fun and and and, and nothing more than that. Uh, and then along the way, though, you realize that what, what am I doing? Like, does the world need another pair of shoes? And then oh, actually, I meet Joey, and he's like, no, no, no this, this is the world's going to change. And I think back in it's a very in 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 a, in a wonderful way. Um, that conversation it feels almost uh, uh, prosaic that sustainability is in every aspect of the way that we live in every business. But back in 2016, that was far less obvious. And so we've come a long way. Great. Um, and I think a long, long, long way still to go. But I, he really introduced me to the idea that the fashion industry, uh, you know, was give or take 10% of global emissions, uh, had this addiction to plastic, was largely paying lip service if they were talking at all about sustainability back then. And uh, it really, f- uh, it didn't get easier from that point f- for, f- uh, in terms of building the business, but it was clear why we existed and what we were doing and how we could make a real difference beyond just selling and making money. I wanted to ask you a bit about like the positioning of the shoes as well, because I watched your Kickstarter campaign. And I think one of the kind of key messages were that wool doesn't smell. I interviewed the founder of um, Day, who is a, they are like sustainable, flushable tampons. And she said that when they, she was raising investment, she was originally talking all about the sustainability credentials of it and no one seemed to care. So she changed the uh, like a kind of selling point. That's obviously from raising capital versus like a consumer message. But it's an interesting thing, I think, within climate products, which is like, when do you lean into that messaging and when do you not? Do you have any kind of expertise on that that you'd like to share, especially for kind of entrepreneurs who want to build sustainable products? What are the key messages? Well, there's two, there's, there's two points to that. I mean, you know, one, let's be really clear. People don't buy sustainable products. They buy great products. And I think where we are in the world at the moment is that a product can't truly be great unless it is sustainable. But that's a recent thing. And I think there's still a very complicated psychological gap between how people connect with the larger understanding of climate change sustainability and how they consume. And so it's a complicated moment. And uh, I think when people hear sustainable, first of all, what the hell does that even mean? And second of all, it's probably more expensive and less good. So uh, I, I think there's, there's a whole thing to unpack there. I think the second thing, when you're building a brand, oftentimes you want to talk about the 27 things that you do really well. And uh, oftentimes the harder more essential and most important thing is to understand the singular reason why you exist and um, what you can do that no one else can do that is going to allow you to cut through and be understood. And when you think about the great brands, they usually have a a singular idea which they're associated with and a single consumer and a single problem and a single reason why they're great. And that's really hard. That's easy to say and hard to do. And I think in our particular case, we've gone through a whole series of different features and benefits before we realize that the number one reason why people buy shoes is comfort, but it's normally associated with ugliness. And if we could bring true um, design sensibility to the idea of comfort and facilitate that through natural materials, uh, then we could create uh, products that the industry was not interested, willing, or in some cases able to make because they were addicted to the use of cheap synthetic plastic materials. And so Supernatural comfort, those three pillars um, became the North Star for us and, and remain so for us as a brand. And I, I think, again, what, what's the one thing that will make you essential and what are all the things that you're not going to be <laughs> become really, really important in the context of building a brand? And the sooner you can get there, uh, you know, it's one of the most important things I think you can do. And now... You're a public company, you know, you've got a thousand employees, you've reached success that many, many businesses and ideas can only dream of. What do you find is challenged now? And you don't need to answer that again in, in business terms as much as just mentally, how you look at the world. Like, are there any things that are that are challenging in a new way? Well, it's it's, it's funny. It's it's a funny thing about success. You like have a little bit of it and then um, it gets harder. And to, again, to use a football analogy, if you're in League Two or in the conference and you get promoted, congratulations, you you know you just won the league and now you're in a tougher league and it's going to be even harder. Uh, and if you don't play well or improve your team and add new players, then you're going to get relegated and probably go back to where you, <laughs> to where you started. And, and um, so, okay, we're a year into being a public company at a really tough moment. 
and find myself, okay, let's call that the business equivalent of the Premier League. This cons- uh, you know, relentless need to you know, reinvent yourself, to improve, to continuously get better. I mean, I, I sit here and, and, and maybe this is a little bit of my English and Kiwi upbringing, thinking about the 10 things we've got to do better and then the 10 things that I've got to do better. And I, I, again, that played out too far. And I, I think I've learned this uh, as a leader, you know, people get a little bit tired of it. Sometimes you've got to stop, slow down and smell the roses and, um, and pat yourself on the back. But you've also are in a highly competitive context and you've got to continue to get better. And I think for, for me, um, the lesson there is that it never really stops and, um, and you need to be okay with that. You need to be at peace with it. Um, it's sort of essential um, to kind of continuing to believe that you can improve and you can get better and that there's more that you can eke out of the context of the situation or the talent or the team. Um, and, I, you know, I think for me, um, this is in many ways my first job coming out of professional sport. Um, I'm a designer uh, leading a public company as a co-CEO. There aren't many. <laughs> what, what, what can I be doing to best support the team? Mm. And you need, you need to be... Um, you need to be okay with the, the relentlessness of that need to continue to kind of uh, keep thinking in that way. There's a wonderful book um, called Setting the Table by uh, Danny Meyer, the founder of Shake Shack. And he, he talks about this uh, through this wonderful metaphor of um, uh, a salt pepper shaker and the idea that when um, people move it, you have to keep putting it back in the center of the table. And that, that is the job in hospitality. And you need to do it not just for one day, but for every day and relentlessly. And, um, and that can either be a drain on your energy or it can be a source of inspiration and the reason why you do what you do. And you, you, if you don't uh, adopt the latter, you'll, you'll, you'll get tired. And so I, I think, you know, there's real, there's real, I, I feel just incredibly privileged, um, the people that we're working with and to be on this journey. And I continue to believe that, um, that we're only just beginning to tap into what this brand could be and, um, and that, uh, um, you know, and, and I, I just a, a lot of things that can be improved, quite frankly, and there's a lot of fun in that. Yeah. The salt, the salt thing kind of makes me think of it's a craft, you know, versus a, like I'm obsessed at the moment with the word craft, just because I think it's like, it sums up all of that stuff, which is like, for example, if you're doing yoga, you've done the same routine every time. How can you turn it into a craft? You know, how can you be attentive to the details? How can you be aware? How can you be present? Um, I want to ask you just one last question if you've got a couple more minutes. It sounds like from what you've said that you have a you're you're naturally very even though you're very humble you're very competitive and I think you have that kind of drive and it you you must have to have been a professional footballer you must have to lead a public company. Where does that come from that ability to keep readjusting the salt you know keep doing the things that keep correcting the course keep showing up even when it's difficult. Do you think it comes from anything um, particular, or does it come just from practice? Yeah, I don't know. It's it's really interesting, I, and I I think um, I remember playing my auntie in um, table tennis. She used to have that at, at her place, and she was good. And then I don't know, it must have been like nine or ten or eleven or twelve, and like not being able to beat her. And I just would be like, when I think back, I'm like, just it was just as it's been there for whatever reason, and. Uh, we've all got different things that we are, and I think when I started to play sport, I, I realized that competitiveness was was just the thing that I loved to compete and that I hated losing, and that was just I think a little bit of a curiosity to my parents, and because we're all different, and I'm a parent now, and where that came from, who the hell knows? Um, but it's there, and I, you know, it was interesting when I finished with professional sport. I, I, I'd taken, I ended up retiring. Uh, after the World Cup and, and in, I tore up, I think there was a, you know, a couple of years left on my contract and I tore it up to go back and start again. And I, I just had, I'd taken it as far as I, I could and I was, I was a little bit a little bit tired and, and uh, I'd equally was conscious that just that, that competing and that mindset of competing was, it's not always the healthiest place to be for the longest time. And we'd had a like barbecue at mum and dad's place when, when I retired and mum had pulled me aside and sort of said, Oh, we're really proud of you, but we're quite excited to have you back. And it was like the first moment that I was conscious that, Oh, wow. You know, um, uh, that, uh, you can be careful here in the way that you, you know, you manage your relationships in pursuit of this thing that you're building. But equally when I, um, retired and I was back in London and a student again, living in a dorm and, 
spending all my life savings, not quite clear. I, I'm, there was a big gap and I really missed um, that sense of competition. And, and I think I've come to reflect that I feel like if I was running the corner store, there's a part of me for whatever reason that would want it to be the best corner store in the world. There's just an, it's just, you know, it's just there. And, um, and a lot of people may be listening if they're listening, probably have that and that's okay. And so I, I think there's an essential nature of, of, of that in your DNA. You, you kind of need to be working on something and improving something and tuning something and building something. And, and back to this, the, the, the topic of work-life balance, um, it's a really important part of me. And if I'm not doing it on some level, uh, and equally there's, you know, there's a, there's a part of that process that needs to be managed and that you can take that too far and think it's too important. And, and so it's like anything else, I think, uh, with time and with space for reflection, you start to understand yourself. And I think you can, again, you can control the pen. And one of the great things about building a business, and there's lots of hard things, one of the, the, you know, the great things is um, you, know, you get to choose who you work with and what you're working on. And um, that is an incredible, incredible gift. Uh, and so if you're fortunate enough to be in that situation, um, you're going to make sure you, you take advantage of that. You said that your parents said, it's good to have you back. Were there any things that you did differently with all birds to try and be more present for the people in your life or to cultivate those relationships? Celebrate the, the successes along the way more and more intentionally and take time to do that and enjoy the process uh, as much as you possibly can with all the good the good things and the bad things that come with it. I saw an interview with Rafael Nadal, the tennis player, uh, and he just, it was the Australian Open a little while ago, and he'd been through this like an epic five-setter, and I think in the larger context, too, he'd come back from injury, and so it was just this incredible battle. And he, he said, I, well, when I play tennis, I want to feel all the emotions. That's part of it. Like I want to... I want the the challenge and I want the feeling of success and I can only have one without the other is what I took from that. And, and so I just think the ability to feel that and, and equally enjoy that a little bit, knowing that there's some part of me that needs it because I, when it went away, I really missed it, has been helpful. And then just laughing along the way. And uh, my mum's always just from a young age, just remember to smile, it's super important. And I dedicated myself to that as one of the pillars of how I've approached all birds. And, and I, I think it's made a big difference. But I just think that that ability to have a little bit of space to understand yourself and to think about who you are and to have people close to you that can hold a mirror back to that so you can understand, um, you know, it's really, really important part of the journey, I think. Okay, I'm going to leave it there because it's a nice note to end on. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. I, I really appreciate it and such such thoughtful questions. I've done lots of these, but uh, the thoughtfulness of those questions really uh, resonated and uh, was appreciated. So thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the Out of Hours podcast. I appreciate it. And if you enjoyed this episode and you've been enjoying this season, please do consider supporting the show by buying me a coffee. You can head to the link in the show notes to do so.